So welcome everyone, welcome, welcome. <clears throat> so we're talking about uh, feeling tones and just to set the definition down, we're not talking about emotions. Feelings are the precursors to a whole array of events that uh, ultimately manifest as you and I, but at the very basis, the onset, there are subtle relationships that the organism and the mind has to an experience. Uh, because the, we uh, invest in the experience either a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral tone to that experience. <clears throat> now, uh, notice I didn't say that the experience held a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feeling. We invest that into the experience. So it's coming from us. It's the first conditioning that we have in relationship to an experience at hand. It's a very important uh, for that reason because it starts building a conditional framework and base and foundation on which uh, the whole sense of self arises eventually. And what we've been doing uh, in this foundation is building upon the stability and groundedness of the first foundation. First foundation was the foundation of body, physicality of experience, that sense of solidity of form, and having a body and being able to use that body as sort of a base camp for presence, for awareness, and uh, also for stability and groundedness. It just connects us to the earth and beyond. And so now that we're we have that stability and the Satipatthana foundations are actually uh, more nuanced as they move from each, towards each of the uh, different foundations. So the, as we move into the second foundation, this foundation of feeling, uh, it's best to have a, a nice tie-in to the body uh, because the more stable we are within the body, the easier we can pick up the feeling tones that are arising and not be misplaced or not be able not give ourselves over to the conditioning of those feeling tones because we have a nice stable reference of in present moment and so we won't be taken off course by these very subtle feelings <clears throat> and uh, if I can just give an example this weekend uh, Ellen my wife and I were at a couples workshop and uh, we were, um, uh, one of the recommendations in this workshop is that you, when you have a discussion or a disagreement, you don't do it when you're flooded emotionally, but you wait until you have some degree of composure and stability. Um, nice Dharma point. So they had this little uh, electronic gizmo that uh, you put your thumb on it. it I guess it measures your, the pulse of your thumb and uh, it has this little line, this little scale of lights that go up and down. You're supposed to breathe in, in accordance with these lights that go up and down. And then as you put your thumb on this, this light starts out as red, which means that you're anxious, then goes to blue, which means you're settling down, and finally to green, which means that you're now ready to speak to one another. <laughs> so they, were, they cost $200 a piece, so I wasn't picking <laughs> 
I wasn't picking it up as spare change. So, I, but they had a table display, and there were two of them, and like 300 people at the at the at the retreat at the workshop. So we were all kind of waiting to get our thumbprint in there. So I w and everybody wa sort of circles the person who's doing it. So everybody's looking at you as you. So I was watching the person ahead of me, and he was going right to green pretty quick. And I thought, this is going to be a snap for me. <laughs> <laughs> because I've done other things, like the biofeedback, where you raise the temperature of your palm, and mine always spikes, you know. And so I thought, OK, so this, I'm going right to green here. I'm, I, might, I might put this thing off scale. <laughs> so they, I, put, I was the next in line, so I put my thumb on there, and it was red. So I haven't started yet, people. <laughs> so I said, I don't have to follow this scale, right? I know how to breathe. So I'm starting to breathe. And I look up, it's still red. It didn't even flip, go down to blue. So I said, well, maybe I ought to follow the scale. So then I start breathing with the scale, and still red. So meantime, I'm wondering, I wonder if there are any of the beginning students that I don't know. <laughs> This would be very embarrassing. Um, <laughs> if anybody asks me, I'm a school teacher. That's a <laughs> so don't tell anybody what I do. So I couldn't get it off of red. So very humbly, I gave it to the next person. With the, my tail between my legs, I left. And so I, I realized, as I was leaving, I said, oh, you know, I have an arrhythmia. And the, the monitor was picking up the arrhythmia of the heart. And so it never got off of red because it, it probably looked like I should, they'd call, they should call 911. <laughs> but it was a very interesting way because my first approach to it was, you know, I can do this and I like these objects. And then when I put it down, I said, that's a piece of junk. <laughs> <laughs> I changed completely in my relationship to my conditioning to it. And so it gave me a good insight into um, both a physiological response of feelings, and, but also how quickly they can change, how quickly these conditioned processes can be a, attractive at one point and very unpleasant at another. And when I was in college, one of the, uh, as a psychology major, they made you go through a number of experiments You're, as a subject. And uh, one of the uh, I had, guess I had tested that I was aversive to snakes back then when I was younger. Hadn't been to Thailand where that quickly <laughs> gets drained out of you. But uh, I remember um, they put a, something uh, that looked like it was going to monitor your heartbeat. And then they played that sound over a speaker system so you could hear your heartbeat or what you thought was your heartbeat. Actually what it was was uh, they, they were, mo they were it wasn't your heartbeat at all. It was just something else that they were doing. Then they would show you a picture of, of a snake, and they would, you could hear the heartbeat. And then you were to mark down how frightened you were of that picture. And what they found was that you rated the scale of fear according to how you monitored the heartbeat, not really what your initial response to that internally, what the response was to that. Uh, and so, you know, even though it was artificial, if I heard my heart beating racing, I'd say, well, I must be afraid. And then I'd, you know, check off that I'm afraid of this particular picture.
And it showed me the, the tie-in between the physiological response and the uh, approach or avoidance, the, uh, the link between the stimulus and response and the liking and disliking, that really the, the body sort of holds the basis uh, in a very uh, nuanced way of the feelings as they come in. Uh, into the system. And the mind sort of monitors, or one possibility is the mind monitors the physiolo physiolo physiology of the system and then responds in accordance to what it feels in terms of action. Uh, but it showed the tie-in of the body and the feeling tones. And uh, I have left, I left uh, those experiments deeply moved by how intelligent the body was and it's being able to pick up these very subtle conditionings. And this conditioning begins in the body. I don't think there's any question about that. I don't, very quickly the mind has an image that it uh, perpetrates uh, in terms of that image uh, or, uh, or labels in terms of that image and then it backs away or, or whatever. But I think there's a, there's a very close relationship that the mind governs itself within the body's responses. And what are those responses? Well, those responses when they're played out, when it's a pleasant feeling, uh, then it's played out in terms of an avoidance or in terms of an approach. And then if it's an unpleasant, it's played out in terms of an avoidance. And if it's neither, it's just ignored. And from that very basis feeling, this is, and this is an important point, comes all of this. Our worldview, our place in the world, our perceptions of self, the story we tell about ourselves. From that very rudimentary, I mean, even an earthworm has a stimulus response, aversion or, or, um, to uh, electrical stimulation. And the body, uh, then has this response, the mind captures it and builds a subtle a grasping or a pushing or a pulling uh, relationship to it. And then the image is built up and a story is built around that, all from a very simple feeling tone. Nothing dramatic here, nothing uh, really very intelligent about it at all. And the stories then generate memories associated with that very thing, which then act as cues for us when the next experience, the like, the same or similar experience comes again, we can then reach back in the file cabinet of our minds and pull these experiences forward. And this Personal story has opinions. What are those opinions based upon? They're based upon the feelings we have about something. Our opinionation is not based often on any fact or objective fact. It's often just a, just a, a sort of a raw message of approach or avoidance that something gives us. And even if it's based upon fact, those facts then take on a particular feeling in and of themselves and we then bring a whole emotional response from those feelings into the facts. And uh, then we try to, our story then ties into that emotional response and elaborates upon it. 
to try to justify the fact that we're having that emotional response and how important this feeling or this story is in relationship to our, our um, life. But remember this, those feeling tones were engendered by us. They didn't, the, the experience didn't give it to us. We gave it to the experience. Now, if you understand that, and you understand that the story of our life is built upon that projection of feeling to something, to an experience, then you realize that our whole story is a projection. It has little relationship to the world. It's just the message, it's just the narrative we're giving the world through the approach and avoidance that we've had along the way in terms of memory and with similar experiences or similar people or like situations or whatever it might be. That the mess we find ourselves is a mess of our own making. It's not from external factors. It's from internal messages we give external factors. And so the feeling tones give us some sense of a way to begin to work with these things. It also shows us really what radical accountability is all about. Because if the feelings are coming from us, then we can't blame having an emotional response onto something that's external to us. So it's, this is an important foundation. And I don't think it's such an important foundation so that you're only aware of feelings all, all the time, but really to see how it builds the character of ourselves, not only in longitudinal terms, in terms of attitudes and, and character, but also in terms of becoming something moment after moment. From the pulling and pushing that we give to a moment, we arise within that moment. And so this is, um, something that Buddha talked about in terms of dependent origination, the arising of self in relationship to the conditions that are immediately present, and then the sustaining of self from the story we give those messages on an ongoing basis. So uh, I would like to talk a little bit about these feeling tones, but in relationship to body physiology. Uh, because I think it's important for us to get a sense of how the body can, can, um, can cue us as to what feeling tone that might be occurring and whether this feeling tone has become patterned within us uh, and we are in a drawback mood rather than in a, uh, a supportive or a receptive mood. So uh, the first one I wish to speak about is um, our body's uh, response to the pursuit of pleasure. And uh, as you will often notice with yourself, and as, as you uh, start grasping or start wanting something or start desiring something, there's a leaning for, actually a physical leaning towards something. And the body, you can cue yourself. Oh, I see it. Something's going on here where I'm moving uh, in a direction of what? Wanting something that's up ahead of myself. Some desire is activated. A desire by its very nature is not present at the time the desire is arising or you wouldn't desire it. Desire arises for what this moment will evolve into and therefore I'm waiting for the future in my desire. And the way the body responds 
to a, to a pattern of pursuit of something in the future is a leaning, physical leaning into or towards something. So you can get, your, get a feeling for, you know, you're in traffic and you're, you know, you're leaning into the steering wheel or you're the grip of your hands or just the general stimulation of the body and how it's responding to the inward messages that up ahead is what you want to get out of the traffic jam, you want to get through this, you want to have something resolved in you, and that leaning is taking you out of the present moment and placing you entirely within the context of, of a, an idea, of a grasping idea. And that if we work this in terms of our meditation, if meditation is in the realm of that kind of leaning, then uh, you're not having the meditation experience that you wanted when you sat down, that you, know, you really wanted a different kind of meditation experience, that you're waiting for something uh, to occur that isn't occurring, you're waiting for some green light to show itself rather than the red one, and there's tension that's arising from the uh, experience in the meditation. And, and generally, you can feel the tension uh, very um, completely in the meditative response. So you can get a sense of that leaning both meditatively in terms of its physiological leaning, but also in a grocery line when you're stuck behind the slowest uh, uh, line in the whole store. And you're going, why didn't I get into that other line? This guy's got on and on. And that, that sense of you know, just trying to push life ahead of itself. So you can use it as a cue. Use it as a tactile cue for yourself. And say, okay, oh, oh, okay, I got it. This is a grasping. This is a leaning. And wherever there's a leaning, there's also a pushing. These unpleasant and un the pleasant and unpleasant really arise together. What you're moving towards is because there's something you want to get out of. You're getting out of something. You can also feel that energetic kick from what you're running from within that leaning pose. Okay, so um, this sense of noticing, and I think that the most easily accessible point of entry to Westerners, which I've mentioned before, is not the pleasant or unpleasant aspect of experience, but rather the emotional quality of the experience that we're in. Uh, so motions allow us to enter in. You begin to get a sense of our emotional life, and it's an entry point, uh, if we haven't already been present, to be present in that moment. And when the emotions are there, you're also beginning, to, you're, you're within a narrative. So it's far from the beginning of the original experience and the derivation of that experience. You're somewhere in the middle of a narrative that's uh, perhaps... Um, three octaves above normal. And uh, there's a whole sense of disarray. And, and so you just, you have to be willing, okay, just, all right, so this is uncomfortable for a moment. Stop here, just stop within this uncomfortableness. Just stop, just arrest, just pause within this. Let me feel the feeling tone associated with this. Where did this start with? What, let me go back to its beginning. Let me feel that. And so you begin to get very sensitive to 
being brought in because the body feels very uncomfortable in its leaning, in its leaning mode. And when it's uncomfortable like that, that's a cue that we do need to come back in, that we want to come back in and bring some sanity to this whole movement. Remember uh, that the uh, meta phrase, uh, ease and well-being. And sometimes that resonates so deeply in our heart that we can, we can just say, okay, so let me find the ease and well-being here. Come back to the ease and well-being. Instead of this busyness, this out-of-controlness, after a while the leaning forward isn't even associated necessarily with an experience that we were trying to grasp. It becomes its own reinforcement. Busyness becomes its own reinforcement. It has its own high. It has its own pleasure associated with staying busy. Why we're busy, or how that whole character or attitudinal pattern arose, we've lost. We don't even know that anymore. It's just busyness for its own sake. I say, wait a minute, this is insane. This is insane. And, but there's nothing harder for uh, anyone to do than to go against the deeply ingrained patterns that have arisen around feeling tone. Because we have, we have, we proclaim them as our life's purpose. And somehow we proclaim even busyness as our life's purpose. Being productive, useful, I don't know how we translate it, but to stay busy seems essential to our life's meaning. And so when we are questioning these things, you'll find that there's an enormous backlash of emotion that feels as if you're betraying yourself, just to question it. Just to, just to say, why am I busy? It feels like a betrayal to the whole character that has arisen around being busy and the whole purpose and point of being busy. So this isn't easy work. It's not as if you can just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to pause right through this and never have it pick, come back again, because a lot of your values will be tested when you allow yourself to intercede at any point in your drama and in your narrative. But are we up to that? I certainly hope so. I, because nothing will change unless we are or willing to, to look at this. So the second uh, feeling tone is the backward stance, the back on our heels uh, where we're, uh, we're uh, avoiding a moment, where we're trying to keep it at bay, uh, holding on to what has been, uh, and stabilizing ourselves uh, as a kind of holding on gesture rather than moving forward, moving outward. It's an aversion towards change. It's an aversion towards uh, moving with life and accommodating life. It's wanting to retain and maintain what life has been to us. And so you can feel yourself pulling, pulling back physically. And this isn't a fantasy. You can feel it. You know, you, even in the expressions, even in turning away. Turning away, the body is moving in a direction. There's a there's a physical response to it. And so you can use that. Okay, that's interesting. 
make it into a, an investigation in and of itself. So what's resistant to change? That's an interesting one. And with that, of course, comes a whole pattern of worry about having to change and what I will have to accommodate within change. And so often in a component pattern or attitudinal pattern that accompanies this aversion to moving into the moment fully, where the past is more important than the present, just in the same way as in grasping the future was more important than the present, now the past is more important than the present. And there can be an indulgence in memory where you just want life to be that way and any sense that of decay or death, a resistance to any information that invites the true relationship, the, tru the truth of things is resisted. Oh, you're lying in bed and you say, oh, I've got to get out of bed this morning. You know, much rather just lounge in bed. Often there's an indulgence and comfort and an aversion to change that pattern. It clings to what it knows. This is an interesting point, and I'd like to just uh, talk a moment about that. Uh, when we have some reluctance to change, to move forward, what you often find uh, within that uh, system, in that narrative, is a lot of opinions. Opinions and a great deal of, of judgment within that opinion. Uh, so we, it's as if our opinion somehow will allow us to hold our place uh, endlessly. If we can have them perpetuate the same opinions about things, in some ways we don't have to move forward into a new relationship to things. And so therefore, a lot of opinions will begin to form within somebody that has that kind of leaning back. Uh, and uh, it's interesting too, I think, uh, that, um, that opinions form from feelings, remember. We think that they're true substantially, but they're just having a certain set of conditions occur you have a certain opinion that arises from an, whether that set of conditions is approachable to you or uh, unapproachable, where you pull back. And then an opinion is formed from the sense of leaning into or pulling back from. And who knows where that original conditioning came from? So somebody can remind you of their mother and therefore you'll pull back from them and will never give them a chance to be anything other than your image of them as your mother if you had a hard time with your mother. And that projection is never questioned. And it just seems kind of logical that she, because she is acting or her voice sounds like my mother, that she would be of similar character. And we never question it. And then we think our opinions are true. Just based on feelings. Based upon what? Based upon what? Based upon feelings, a tone, a stimulus and a response. And let us not pretend as meditators that we are as open as we like to believe we are. Because really, we're open to people who are similar to us. 
how open are you to the Rush Limbaugh's of the world? See, receptivity and openness are often confused. We think we're open, we want to be open, we try to be open, but you're in a very, very homogenous group here where I'm sure that many of you vote similarly and have ideas and hold the environment. Uh, but this is an enclave, as we all know. And you move out from there and you'll feel your body contract because a new set of opinions come to it. As if your set of opinions and my set of opinions hold more value than somebody who is on the east side of the mountains and their conditioning has brought a certain opinionation to them. And, but your opinion is better because it's based on be better feelings, right? <laughs> so a feeling is right or wrong? How can a feeling be right or wrong? When it's the conditioned response we give things. See, true understanding is to see that all opinions are essentially equal in life. All opinions are essentially equal. We don't want to enter that world because that world has no adversary. We can't fight in that world. And so we associate our pleasant opinions and make an adversarial distinction and separation to those that hold counter opinions to us. When, if you had lived in their uh, lives, and gone through the conditioning that they had gone through, your opinions would be quite likely formed exactly the way theirs are. So it gives you a pause here as to what, when you realize what they're based upon, when you realize that the set of circumstances has, has been somewhat um, uh, just happenstance, you get a little clearer as to uh, rightness and wrongness <coughs> views. <clears throat> I remember uh, a story I've, I've told here, I think, before, but uh, I was in hospice uh, director in uh, a fundamental church on the east side of town asked us to serve their hospice, serve their uh, dying folks. But they wanted to do the volunteering. They wanted to do the chaplaincy and the volunteering. So I thought, oh, that sounds reasonable. So we'll provide the nursing and the social work and the physician care and all that. Uh, so I took it to the staff thinking that, you know, because of one of the base uh, assumptions or uh, values of a hospice program is that we serve everybody, regardless of disposition, attitude, you know, unprejudiced uh, openness to whomever is dying. So I said, okay, this fundamental church wants us to partner with them. And the staff said, no, we don't want to do it. I said, what do you mean you don't want to do it? I was not expecting that. Oh, we've worked with their, their church before and uh, they try to proselytize and convert us while we're there. And it's just another stressor on the job. So we'd rather not do it. I said, wait a minute, we're, we're making a statement of being open as a, to everyone. And you're saying everyone but. When there's a but, it's not everyone. 
And eventually, after a great deal of discussion, they agreed to do it. But you see, I mean, don't be very hesitant to proclaim yourself an open person, that we're really open. I mean, where are our prejudices? And just because we might speak right, correctly, so politically correct, we've got it all down, doesn't mean that the prejudices aren't hiding in there and that we just aren't willing to expose those prejudices and to look at them. And so when they're not examined, they don't go away. It's only by examining anything, making it conscious that we have any chance of uprooting it at all. And to get, to get a sense of that, to get a sense of where it is that we're still holding on and limited. And when you see it in yourself, don't politically correct yourself in some kind of internal response to it. Let yourself feel what you're feeling. And then you can question what you're feeling because none of us want to be prejudiced, although we may contain prejudice. Prejudice is nothing more than a set of conditions that was instilled with a, in us at a certain age. And to re-expose that, to go out and have lunch with the person who you're prejudiced against or have some value difference with, to actually listen to them is the true receptivity that's needed to get beyond prejudice. Prejudice, the ending of prejudice comes from receptivity, from being receptive, from being willing to listen allowing an unbarricaded heart to actually hear again, to hear again what is being said. Now the third uh, stance, may I say, uh, it's not really a stance, it's the delusional uh, stance, but it's not really a stance because it doesn't have a ground. It's like being groundless. It's not leaning forward, it's not leaning, it's more like being two feet above the ground, just kind of wandering stance and not really being connected and kind of dreamy. Uh, and many of us know people and they can't quite get their life managed, you know, it's not quite, they're not quite on time enough and they're, it's just not, it's just a kind of in disarray. There's kind of a disarray there. It's a spacey and aimlessness and really no direction. And so if that, feels familiar to you then and you also an accompanying experience of that is having little confidence in yourself because there's no ground under your feet to give you the sense of stability and point of reference for yourself then you know it's worth looking at that people who just stay within the patterns are kind of hopeless because they'll die within that people die in character you want to die in character, stay and don't question your, your patterns. But when you get enough feedback from life about one of these things, that you're, you're always leaning into me, you know, you're always over my shoulder or whatever, or whatever you have difficulty, you're the first one to leave the group. You never stay for any kind of conflict. You never are willing to resolve any of the issues. If you, if you get feedback over and over again, then realize that it's nothing more than a feeling tone that has been made into a story, a narrative, and a life. But if we go back to it, to the feeling, we can make it as simple 
to get out of that conditioning as it was to get into it when we were naive and small and unable to act differently. But it takes awareness. We have to flush out what that feeling is and the accompanying emotions now because it's no longer just a simple approach avoidance. It's got a whole narrative about it. And behind that is a whole set of behaviors that you have trusted for a long period of life. And behind that is all the values you've held because this character is formed. And so it gets big, but it can be made small and simple just by feeling what it's based on, just by knowing what it's based upon. Now there's a fourth way, and I want to spend a little time talking about the fourth posture. The fourth posture is vertical, upright, upright posture. And this is really the spiritual when we're talking about this is the entry of the spiritual life worldly life as we have known it are one of those three dispositions right but the spiritual life is based on this fourth disposition the spiritual life does not push or pull the spiritual life and there's a dimension change I mean in meditation the point of meditation is not to push and pull with every experience it's to learn how to allow the fourth way to arise so that we're not constantly moving with each experience and uh, pulling back or pulling towards or, or pushing towards pushing away from or pulling towards each experience it's the point of entry for ourselves is to just allow life to be as it is to come back to its very simple relationship it doesn't mean that those experiences won't have a feeling tone, but that's all it'll have. If we just allow the experience to have a feeling tone and to be aware that the feeling tone is a feeling tone without adding any dimension of thought or reactivity to that feeling tone, we'll come into this fourth vertical stance. The fourth vertical stance is not caught up in the dimension of ego because the ego was formed from the traction of pushing and pulling. Now, where does that energy go that was used to create yourself? It goes to presence. And so when we're not using the traction of liking and disliking and forming ourselves in relationship to that liking and disliking and developing a whole story and narrative around that, which is a huge component of energy necessary to keep ourselves going egoically where is that energy what energy falls it falls down from the structure it had that encased it and it falls outward into a different dimension a different dimension of space and time now i don't mean the twilight zone because you're not somewhere else but it just doesn't hold the same kind of tension because the ego because the sense of self is has been eliminated by allowing the tension to be eliminated and it's not don't let us uh, this is not esoteric i refuse for anyone to raise your hand and say god that sounds so wow that sounds i i would really like that how many more years do i have to practice let's just be quiet together for a moment And you can feel the vanishing 
the vanishing of the tension. Sometimes I talk about it as stillness. Sometimes I talk about it as not self. Sometimes I talk about it as quiet. Why is it quiet? Because you're not forming any stance to the experience at hand. You're not backlash. There's no backlash. The tires are spinning. There's no traction here. And it's very accessible, very approachable. And you can get a sense of it viscerally, in the body still. And the body's not leaning. Suddenly the body has been freed of its encasement to lean forward or away from anything. And therefore it can arise in spontaneity. Spontaneity can be there. And because we're not being held within the conditioned response of the moment, all of the ways that we've learned how to approach or avoid the moment, there is a sense of verticality and spontaneity and creativity. The problem is, is that we don't want to give up the way we lean. We've developed a whole rationale of why we lean that way and the point and the value of leaning that way. Some of us are so cause-oriented that leaning is our state of purpose of being. If you're cause-oriented, you are leaning. And the Northwest is filled with that. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that you won't find the upright posture in that. And we're so afraid that if we don't lean in a particular direction, we won't feel as passionately as we do about what it is that ever we, whatever we feel about. But try it and see. Don't just make that assumption. You may find that the passion becomes more intense, but you don't make it adversarial. You may find the heart more available, not less. We just don't trust anything but our own, our own tenacity of purpose. So the ego is formed by these, this pushing, by this pulling. And all of, that's what is called the middle way in Buddhism. The middle way isn't halfway between the extremes. It's like, I mean, the way that it's usually described is the Buddha was an aesthetic monk, ascetic monk, and then he, so he tried very hard, and then indulgence, and then he, you know, as a, as a prince he was indulgent, and then he went out and he tried all of his discipline, and he said, okay, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, so the halfway between. No, it's not halfway between. not a new feeling tone. This is a different dimension. It requires more of us. When you're in a linear relationship to your life, then it's just stimulus response, stimulus response. Well, actually, it's stimulus story response. That's why an earthworm when you electric, if you put something negative, it'll move, 
but it doesn't just keep moving every time it sees because it, it doesn't it doesn't have any doesn't have any story associated with it unless it feels the stimulus it doesn't move respond at all but we we've got a whole now image set that we long before or just our belief that it could possibly happen sets off a whole narrative To allow ourselves to be unformed, to allow ourselves not to look back, not to constantly, well, how did I do? What did I do? But, you know, all of that is that we carry a kind of negativity feeling tone about ourselves. And so we constantly, when we carry the very negativity that is forcing uh, the, the accompanying behavior, you see, we, the sense of me. The egoic sense of me can have a dis, is it can have an aversive feeling to it, and therefore we're never we're never properly oriented. We're just always trying to make ourselves feel right, as if we could do something to ourselves to change the feeling tone about ourselves. Well, you can do that, and there are lots of workshops which will change your feeling tone and. And I suggest that you work in that direction until you can feel balanced. But at some point, you just see it as a feeling tone. Oh, this is the way I'm feeling about myself. I don't like myself very much. You just feel it as a as sort of the basis that you'd feel anything. You don't have to believe in it anymore. It's what you have done to yourself. It's what you've invested in yourself. It's the belief you have, the image you have, the feeling you hold. It's not coming from the outside. That's not what everybody sees when they look at you. It's what you see. And you then believe that everybody sees it. When we really begin to understand the derivation of feelings, they're very easily contained in accountability. It's okay, that's the way I'm feeling. And you don't in invest more scripture, negative scripture, into that feeling. Because you see that it has no basis. It was just a set of conditions when you were small that you believed and there are certain assumptions associated, but now you're old enough to know the difference of that and you're going to go back and feel those tones again, but without those same assumptions being activated. So there's a lot to this. I mean, we make it, oh, feeling tones, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, great. And what's the third one? What's the third foundation? But there's stuff, there is, this is, this is meaningful when it's looked at in the right orientation to our lives. And that's what I hope that this course will do, is give us the right, a wise orientation to our lives. Can we sit for a minute or two? <clears throat> So as you sit, as we sit, so is there a movement for, is there a leaning towards or is there a leaning way? If there's tension, 
you probably can feel a little leaning toward. The relaxed posture is vertical, upright. What becomes more important than the playing out of a script is the observation of what it is that's occurring. And that's the definition of meditation. And suddenly this entry point of awakening, it is through this not pulling and pushing, it is through this not compelling ourselves in any direction whatsoever, whatsoever, and only whatsoever can this new dimension open. Everything has to be said differently. just what it is, and to ask nothing from it, nothing more. Sometimes we talk about this as the relaxation of tension with experience. But that tension itself creates the very subject-object within an experience. Because you want something from it, you arise in relationship to it. Want nothing from it, and you won't arise. And there'll be just this. There'll be just this. And it's because we're unconscious to the processes of our own formation. We're completely in disarray. We don't understand how we arise. We just pick up the gauntlet once we have arised and proclaim ourselves to be king and queen. But when we begin to see how it is we're arising, the very nature of self-formation, then we take this a little more seriously. Okay, so anyone who would like to comment or if you have any questions or anything, I'd be happy to try to respond. <clears throat> yes, in the back. Yeah, but what, okay. uh, distinguishing between an evaluation and a feeling. Uh -huh. um, you said we look at ourselves, you know, looking at the feelings we have around ourselves. Right. And then you said. Then we add a judgment to it. Yeah. Right. And then you said we might look at a feeling and say, I don't like myself. Right. But that's an evaluation. Right. That's right. That's right. That, no, no, a feeling is not disgust or sadness. That's an emotion. Feeling is just, okay, see, this is very important. Feelings are not equivalent to emotions. That's very important to understand. Emotions come much further down the narrative 
the narrative, all right? A feeling is a simple, this is much more rudimentary, much, much less intellectual. It's just a, whether an experience is pleasant, attractive to us, unpleasant, how that arises, I don't, it's amazing, isn't it? That we would have placed this, that even at the most rudimentary organism, there's this pleasant and unpleasant, or neutral, which means it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, and therefore there's no willingness to even partake in it. So it's just a very rudimentary, one-celled response to life. So at some one point the Buddha said he realized his whole life all he'd been doing is chasing feelings. That's all he'd ever been doing. And at that point he you see so so you can begin to okay so what's the you know okay so my back hurts at the moment. So it's not a it's not a pleasant feeling. It's an unpleasant feeling. So that's okay so I got it. But what happens is that the mind then responds to the unpleasant feeling and then the sense of I doesn't want that unpleasant feeling. It says, why do I have to have a backache? Why, you know, God, why can't I age quietly <laughs> without backaches? And is this going to be, is this going to go on? And, or, did I do, or maybe it's just how, uh, what kind of a person I am. Maybe I'm, I just overextend myself. You can see, go any way you want to on it, fill the hole. But the next time that backache comes up, the next time that stimulation comes up, it'll contain the story you're just giving it right now. And so it won't be seen as just a simple experience in this moment, a sim simple sensation. It will not only have the feeling tone, but a backlog of messages we've given to ourselves about and through that feeling tone, which in its essence, if you go back to just the feeling of the backache, it's just that. Nothing has to be made of it. Nothing has to be made of it. Nothing has to be made of anything. When you really are committed to not making anything out of anything, you'll wake up. Question is uh, this last stance, the vertical stance. Is it the quest? Is it a? Is it the position of the witness? Well, uh, the witnessing, the that the, the awareness of of it, is actually um, getting close, and it's an intermediate step. It's a little bit. You'll, if you notice the witnesses witnessing, pure witnessing, without any uh, subjectivity at all, is just awareness. But what we often offer to our witnessing is a subjective evaluation. We don't want it there, but it's there, and we're, we're kind of a placeholder of opinion about what it, it's a very small, subtle I statement about what it is that's going on. And so 
it's getting more subtle. It's not as gross as the full-blown narrative, but there's still a subtle narrative uh, going on in there. And as you get, so you begin to see that you're still giving yourself, uh, you know, you're still giving yourself a pep talk or you're still, um, you know, whatever you might be doing in relationship to that experience. And you, and you get a sense, and then there's awareness of that, then that sense of witnessing begins to dissipate. And when it dissipates, uh, we don't establish another place for commentary. When there's no place for commentary, there's no commentator. And that's the shift in dimension. You're not pushing and pulling any longer. You're no longer pushing and pulling. Uh, one way to say it is that we get quiet. You see, and I think there are many times uh, in this uh, gathering where you feel the synergy of quietude that we're all allowing ourselves to come to, and you can get a sense of that place, even if you can't outside of here. It doesn't matter. It's still it's as in you now as it will ever be. And it's just our willingness not to create or objectify an experience or subjectify an experience again and again and again. That's all. That's how you get quiet, is that you see that doing that creates much more havoc than being quiet. So you learn to be quiet because it works. It makes you happy, joyful, gives you space, gives you everything that your heart really longs for, not temporally longs for, but really longs for. But there's a whole phalanx of Mara's troops that stands between ourselves and being quiet because you'll have to go through your value system, which is based upon the noise that you've made life, how you want to be remembered in life by the noise you've made in life. Mostly we want our position determined, not indetermined. And so the only way we can determine our position on other people's maps, including our own, is to make noise. So we, we make a lot of noise. That, just see that. Just begin to see that. To see how it works against what you want for yourself. To see how it works against your deepest passions for yourself. And I don't mean yourself egoically. I mean your heart, your aliveness, your exuberance. Another way of saying it is that as you get quieter, the more alive you become. And the more alive you become, the more alive you want to be. And the more noise you make, the more the aliveness gets fractured. And so healing that fracture ultimately can only happen by being quiet. Um, I have a question about the feeling of neither pleasant yes. or unpleasant. And whether it always leads to what you describe as a delusional uh, type stand. No. Or whether it can be quiet. 
It can't. All of the feeling tones, when they're seen, can lead to quiet. But when they are abided within and reacted to, or in this case, just dismissed, then they have a, often a negative way that they lead us. So, I mean, if you take your breath, for instance, breath is an ex very exciting in the beginning. And so what we do is normally we decide we're going to think along with seeing our breath. Because that'll provide a little bit of excitement, a little bit of pleasure, so that we don't have to just hang out with our breath that is neutral. Then as the practice gets deeper, the breath actually begins to invite some calmness. And we start liking our breath. And we don't want to talk because that takes us out of a calmness, right? So we've gone from a neutral feeling in which it didn't mean much to us at all to a pleasant feeling in which we're, we're, now we're grasping at it and trying to create the, the right conditions for us to be able to have it more, right? For other people who have had a difficulty, maybe they had a near drowning experience, they don't like their breath at all because it represents a kind of anxiety. And so we have to find a different place to rest attention. So anything can hold anything. But in general, when something's pleasant, we want more of it. When something isn't, we want less of it. And when something isn't either exciting or not, then we don't want it at all. And so we don't, we don't notice it. It's like we'll just lose ourselves in thought immediately because thought will hold us, will stimulate us more than something that doesn't entertain us. It's like looking at a blank wall. Well, that, how long are you going to look at a blank wall? And what's going to move you from stopping to look at that blank wall? Like, it's, this is not interesting. <laughs> right? So the sense of be, it being not entertaining, not interesting, or whatever, that'll, or you'll just, like, you'll start seeing images on it that'll, you know, oh, anyway, on it. <laughs> okay, that's enough for this evening. Thank you all very much. We'll, next week we'll have a discussion on this.